0: This is Terrio Media. All right, buckle up, because we're diving into the deep end of real estate shenanigans. In the next segment, I'll be sharing a slice of wisdom, or mischief, you decide, from an interview I had on Glenn Sutherland's podcast, A Canadian Investing in the USA. We get into the nitty-gritty of subject two, seller financing, and the art of commandeering properties with barely a dime in the pocket. So if you've been dreaming of real estate glory with minimal cash to flash, you're in for a treat. Let's roll the tape and delve into the arcane arts of acquiring property on a shoestring budget.
1: Hey, strap in. It's time for the Epic Real Estate Investing Show. We'll be your guides as we navigate the housing market, the landscape of creative financing strategies, and everything you need to swap that office chair for a beach chair. If you're looking for some one-on-one help, meet us at REIACE.com. Let's go, let's go,
0: let's go, let's go,
2: let's go. Let's go. Welcome to a new episode of a Canadian Investing in the U.S. This week, my guest is Matt Terrio. Normally, I don't give intros to people. I usually get them to do their own thing. But your name actually came up when I was, uh, I was on another podcast being interviewed just last week. And people were like, how would you get from investing in Canada to investing in the U.S.? And I like, well, my Thomas story is like, well, it started like, you know, nine years ago, back when podcasting was in its infancy. And back then, there wasn't podcasts in Canada. They just didn't exist. Like for real estate, there was no real estate podcast. And really there was like five big American ones and Matt Terrio is one of those big five. And that's one of the things that helped me take that jump into the U.S. And the other part about Matt Terrio is when I was taking that first jump in the U.S., honestly, there was, I, when I bought the first property, I didn't know how to do financing because completely different from country to country. I didn't know how to do a lot of stuff. So I jumped and got a turnkey property right off the start. And so I worked with Mercedes and we got one of those done. And once I figured that out, then I started doing renovations. Once I figured that out, then we started raising money. Then I figured that and it was like a growth, but it all started with just some mm. action and it started back from Matt Terriot.
0: How <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I didn't know that.
2: But anyway, maybe give everyone a bit of an intro to yourself. And you've actually been sure. kind a of guest on the show before. I should have remembered the number. But
0: anyway, just for the record, I am the longest running real estate investing podcast on the interweb. I was the first one when. Mercedes said, you're going to do what? What is that? Because nobody knew what a podcast was. (laughs) To be fair, I think Jason Hartman was there a little bit before me. But, you know, when it came down to actual strategies and getting your hands dirty and doing it yourself, I was certainly the first one. Consistency every week, right? Yeah. And we're still going. So uh, thank you so much, Glenn, for uh, acknowledging that and sharing that. I appreciate it. And it's funny about a podcast is you just never know who you are touching because because Before I had the real estate podcast, I had somewhat of a personal development podcast called Do Over, and I've listened to all of those too. Did you really? Oh, okay. Because you know, I was doing over in my life at the moment. You know, I just spent 15 years in the music business, and I had made this transition over into real estate, and I wrote a book about that called Do Over. I was 34 years old, so it was a midlife transition, and so I started that podcast first because. The only reason I knew about a podcast is because I was reading somewhere as like the top 10 ways to promote your self-published book. And one of them said to start a podcast. and I was like, what is a podcast? <laughs> so I went and started it. And it was weird because my first 20 episodes, all I did was read the first 20 chapters of my book. And then it got to the 21st episode. I was like, oh, I better come up with something else. And and that's kind of how it all started. But yeah, we had was another podcast you had back then way back too, right where there was that we had. I did one. Hold That House with Matt Andrews. Yeah. That was that came a lot later. We did another one called Creating Wealth. I did that for another company. So I was just mm-hmm. the spokesperson for them.
2: I yeah, There was another one too. Because I remember in like the Epic Real Estate early ones, there was like every once in a while, you would basically literally steal the episode that I heard on the other podcast and it would show up onto the other one, which I actually do myself because I have two podcasts too. So every once in a
0: while, I have a really good one and I steal it, put them on both. Well, I think I was repurposing the do-over stuff. Yeah, maybe that does. There's so much personal development required to succeed in real estate investing, so a lot of it just transferred really well. And you know, I always tell people, like, you know, I could teach you how to fill out a purchase agreement in 15 minutes, but why you don't do it every day has to do with you know what's going on in your brain, and so those two things kind of go together.
2: So, what I wanted to have Matt on here for is I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, some creative strategies. And honestly, I'm pretty sure I probably heard it from your podcast originally. And then, you know, you go take a course, you go take, read some other books and it grows, but you have at least start somewhere. Right now, we're in a weird spot. Market, it's really expensive to get uh, financing. Uh, Some of these fix and flip loans are hitting like the 12% mark. So (laughs) even to do refinances are getting more expensive. To Do purchase loans is getting to be expensive. For Canadians, just being Canadian, is more expensive than being an American. We usually get a lower leverage, higher interest rate. So where I'm kind of leading down here is the sort of the subject two path. I, I believe it's like there's a lot of advantages to this. Maybe let's talk about some of that and we'll talk in a little bit about what subject two is and then, you know, we'll see where this leads on other creative strategies. Third,
0: subject two is when you take ownership of a property, but leave the existing financing in place. So you will end up being on title as the new owner, but the debt is still under the name of the previous owner. And then you just kind of come in and you just make payments on it and keep their loan in good standing. And so that's what subject two is in really simple English. And maybe where you're leading with this based on how you introduced the subject (laughs) is where everything is so expensive right now with the interest rates going up, right? And you know, the last three years, four years, five years, we've had very, very low interest rates and if there's anybody that is selling a property that either purchased or refinanced during that period, that debt that they have on their property is as much of an asset right now as the house is. And so that's what makes that really appealing and it makes it a, a really good creative strategy.
2: Yeah. The most common question I get about when we're talking about subject twos is um, do you need to tell
0: the lender and this, this is this is going on? Well. The word need is probably the operative word. Uh, <laughs> there, there's several ways to do it. A lot of people think uh, that's being immoral or I've even heard people say it's illegal. It's neither, right? The, the agreement is between the owner and the lender, the bar, the original borrower. So you coming and taking that over, that's, you're just go ahead and you're going to make the payments for the person, right? So for the people that would be open to that type of an arrangement, the sellers that'd be willing to give you the debt to make the payments and have them still be on on the hook for it, so to speak. They're in distressed situations most of the time, right? There's, there's something going on in their world where just selling their property a conventional way is just not the best option for them. They got bigger fish to fry is what I always say. Yeah. And so if you look at it from that perspective, you're actually doing someone a favor. So they don't go to default. They don't mess up their credit score and they'll be able to purchase again in the future without having to deal with a foreclosure or a bankruptcy or something like that. So do you have to tell the lender? No. Now there are certain practices where that could behoove you. And then there's other practices where you could conceal it legally. And that might work better. As we go into this new environment, if the rates continue to go up, I think it's going to be more and more important to play the, uh, to conceal it, play that role, play that card. Yeah.
2: I had um, a lender come on the podcast, I think it was a year or two ago, and I asked them this question. Actually, they asked me to cut it out of the podcast afterwards. But the way they said, they said, we're in the business of lending money and we're in the business of collecting payments for that. We're not in the business of owning real estate. Sometimes we find out about it. Sometimes we don't find out about it. But if you make your payments, you keep your nose clean, we have no reason to call this because we're still getting what we plan to get. You know, it's the original terms are still being fulfilled. So the one thing he did say is that it gives them the like almost like a carte blanche. If you piss them off for whatever reason, they do have the ability to call the loan, but Mm -hmm. they don't want to unless there's a reason. If you do this right, you shouldn't have to do this, right? And speaking of which, say you do this wrong, what kind of liability issues would the person selling the house have? What kind of liability issues would you have?
0: So if I took over a property subject to, and say I stopped making the payments and the bank started calling, the bank is not going to call me. They're going to call the original seller who the debt's still under. And the recourse is, I just have to give it the property back or I have to pay it off and get a new loan. Yeah. That's the recourse. I mean, because the liability is still with the original borrower yeah. and that is a risk that they take, Right. Uh, And people ask, well, what's going to stop you from making those payments? Well, what's going to stop me is I control and own this asset right now, and I don't want to lose it, right? I probably fixed it up. I probably put some money in it it myself. This is my business. I collect these properties. This is my strategy. This is what I do. So I would not take this over and not make the payments. That would be a bunch of wasted time and, and energy for me. But yeah, the debt still belongs to the original borrower.
2: And like what you just said is the conversation I have with the seller right? Because I want to make them at ease and like, you know, you're like, what are we going to do? What is the renovation that's going to happen or what, you know, we're going to throw a new roof on it. So I'm, my risk is that I'm going to lose that. If I don't make these payments, it's going to hurt me as well as it's going to hurt you. And I usually, I don't do these on like the perfect houses because a lot of times they won't want to (laughs) go. Right. Right. (laughs) There's
0: usually a reason. It usually doesn't qualify. There's usually some problem with the title, right? That they Totally. You You know. know, what I'm finding right now is that, um, because if I've come across a loan that's two and a half, three 3% and I have no problem paying them a little bit more than what they could probably get on the open market for it. If they left that loan in place, because in the long run, I'm still getting a better deal. And so are they, or unless they just wait for the market to bounce back. That's what, that's their option. They could take the higher price from me and leave the loan in place or put it on the real market and take lower money or wait. And for that someday when the house is, uh, when they could get it on the open market, what the, what I'm going to pay them for it.
2: Yeah, what I'm finding, because there's, there's getting to be more people that are getting good at this, right? Even some of the wholesalers are doing in and in trying to assign subject to properties, which is, you know, fairly new for the last few years. A lot of times they're always just price, right? So they're starting to, you know, if you listen to materials, price or terms, right? So they're starting to reduce in terms. At least some of them are getting smart enough, right? And there's a lot of uh, communities teaching this stuff. I'm finding the ones that the wholesalers send out, the you know, when you add the deposit or the amount of money they want down, plus the loan you're taking over, there isn't a whole lot left. Like the reason you would do this is just to inherit the terms, but then you're basically almost buying a
0: turnkey property. Like sometimes the value isn't there. Is that kind of what you're seeing as well? Yeah. I mean, wholesalers are the people that are coming into creative financing now. It's, this is brand new to them. This is the only way I know to do it. And it's how I started because I just came out of a a bankruptcy from the music business and my wife left and I had all of her debt. And so I was in a terrible financial situation when I started investing in real estate. That was 2006. Golly. It's like 18 years ago. Holy cow. That was 2006. And my only option were creative acquisition strategies. And I got really, really good at it. And with each transaction that you do, it's you got a new layer of creativity for the next one and the next one and the next one. So the way that I approach it, I mean, in my strategies, that's 18 years of real world experience. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm looking at a deal, I got to make money from it in one of two ways. Either there's got to be a lot of equity in it so I have the potential to flip it if I needed to, or I have to create a cash flow, a cash stream from it. Right. And so if just because someone is willing to sell me a property that's subject to, if it doesn't have one or the other, I don't want it. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I'm an investor and my job is to make money. And if this property is not going to make me money, why would I want this? I think wholesalers are thinking, hey, it's a subject to, that's the value. Yeah, but it's a subject to, but I lose money every month. Right. Right. So I think that's like that's a little bit of a disconnect in the community of wholesalers that have recently embraced the creative financing strategies.
2: Yep. No, I agree. And you just mentioned strategies, right? And I know you have a big coaching program, I have a smaller coaching program, but um a lot of times I'll have uh, students even come back to me and they'll say, uh, I asked the guy for seller financing or or I asked the guy for right off the start for uh would you be open to holding the mortgage and giving me the property? <laughs> Maybe you have some more creative ways to go about
0: this. I'm going to share a couple of my ideas too. See if they're this same. <laughs> well, that's the secret of creative financing. People think, you're like, how would you structure this deal? How would you structure that deal? Would this be a subject to, would it be a rack? Would it be a lease option? How about a contract for deed? Like, that's what people are thinking of creative financing is. right. Creative financing is in the presentation of the price and terms. It's all in the presentation. And the biggest reason people can't pull the creative financing thing off is, is typically they introduce it too early and they scare the seller or they confuse the seller or they just don't understand it enough themselves where the seller has no confidence in them. <laughs> and well, the other thing would be, God, there's more, is that it actually doesn't solve the seller's problem. So they, the buyer wasn't paying attention to what the seller actually needed or the seller just needs the money for something else and they can't, yep. right? So there's a lot of different reasons. Most of the time, it's kind of what you just said. They get, people learn the strategy, they get really excited and they go in for the kill way too soon. And I find this, and I'll get, I'll ask your question very, very thoroughly. But I see this with real estate agents too. With real estate agents that want to become real estate investors. Because I did that. I was an agent for four years before I became an investor. And agents will do that too in a different way though. They'll come in to be an investor. They'll try to buy it. If they get a little bit of resistance, they'll go, oh, well, I could list it for you. So, I'm seeing investors come in and going, well, I would like to get it at a deep discount. And they say, no, okay. How about seller financing? Like they go to it too fast. Right? So first thing is when you'd mentioned earlier, the way that we purchase property is one of two ways by either my price, the seller's terms or the seller's price of my terms. I just need to control one of those and I can put the deal together, but I got to go in understanding that the seller, they don't know what terms are. They only know price. So you got to start with the price and you got to go, you got to keep going back and forth on price and until you reach an absolute impasse. And then if you're going to introduce the seller financing or a subject to, you got to introduce it in just layman's terms, like a fifth grader could understand it. If you step in with real estate investor jargon or industry jargon, the seller doesn't know what that is. They think you're pulling a fasty and now they feel inferior and they're embarrassed and or they're confused and all they can think of is in their defense is just to say no. So if I reach an impasse with the seller on price and I'll ask five or six different ways on price before I ever go to anything creative. And then it'll be like, well, you know what? It doesn't look like we'll be able to pull this off based on what we've discovered here together. The market might allow me to maybe give you a little bit more, maybe even get all the way up to your price. If you could take some money now and the rest later, how much do you actually need right now? And all I'm doing is I'm just closing for a down payment. That's all I'm doing. Tell me what you need down. So there you'll get the resistance. Well, I never thought of it that way. But at this point, you've got rapport built. You've gone back and forth. They know the price thing isn't going to work out. So let's look at the alternative. And so that's the introduction to the conversation where, a seller is actually starting to like consider it. But anytime before then, I mean, if you go to, if you're on the date and you go for the kiss too soon, you're getting kicked out of the car. Yeah.
2: And oh yeah, that, I love this stuff. And so I know, cause I listened to your show a million times, free option, letter of intent. So you like to do that for the start when you're just negotiating, you're just talking, that's not coming in. Do you use the letter of intent when you're trying to do the creative stuff or do you just use that for when you're just trying to get different prices?
0: Yeah, so I will use the three option letter of intent again once I've reached an impasse on price. Okay. And I will show up with one basically filled out on what I where I really want it to be. Yeah. And I use it as a negotiation piece to keep the thing alive. And so it'll typically, in, in this context, I use the three option letter of intent in two ways. If I'm going back and forth with the seller for face-to-face and we just can't come to us, like, well, you know, look, seller, Mr. Seller, Miss Seller, It doesn't like the market's going to both let us get what we want. I'm going to take a look at another property down the road. Hopefully you get back to me before, before I buy that one. But in the meantime, what I can do is I can leave you with this letter. It's three different ways of how I'd be prepared to purchase your property. But just, you got to have to call me back before I get to that one. Because I can't buy both houses. All right. It's nice talking to you. And that's it. So I just kind of leave it that way. And I I mentioned the other house to kind of create the urgency. Not like some people will do. Well, here's my three option letter intent. It expires tonight at midnight. You know what I mean? That's like, it's just a little bit of hardball.
2: Lead up a, a, an urgency that doesn't necessarily mean anything
0: to anybody. Yeah. Um, but right. if I say yeah. I can't buy both of them, that, people understand that. Okay. Yeah. And so I use that three options because now they can actually see, wow, I can get this price if I take all cash. I can get this price if I'm a little bit lenient with when I get the cash. And then if I want to go long-term, I can get this price. So those are like my three different options. And so I'll use it that way. And then it makes the follow-up really easy. So the next day is, hey, Mr. I'm, I'm talking to them. I don't know if that's going to go through or not, but I left that three option letter of intent with you. Um, I'm just curious, what did you like best? Option one, two, or three. So it makes a very easy follow-up conversation without feeling awkward, without compromising your your negotiating position, without sounding desperate. And they'll say one, two, or three. And, or a lot of times they say none of them, right? I'll say, Okay, okay, I understand. So which one was closest though? Now I get them to say the one, two, or three, and then and then they'll say one, two, or three and say, great. If we chose that one, how far apart are we? And so now they're creating their own offer right now. And so typically I need a little bit more money down. I don't want to wait as long to get the payments, or I need a little higher interest rate, stuff like that. And so that works as a really good follow-up piece. Now, the second way that I will use it is I will drop it in the mail. For every single person that says no, call it the rejection letter. It's customized a little bit for that specific purpose. I have a student that actually, as I was teaching him how to use this three option letter of intent. He's like, cool, I got it. I love this. And then 155 deals later in 18 months, his results were not typical, but he was a total rock star with it. And I was like, so wow. He goes, yeah, I just put an automated system. So every time a lead said no and they hung up, And we didn't have a deal. I just sent them a letter. So we sent out 1,155 of those letters and 55 of them came back as deals. Yeah, half percent. That's okay. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, as deals, not a response rate. You can't even get that response rate on your postcards right now. Right. So these are the people that said no to him. So these were 55 deals that most, I mean, everybody else on the planet would have been like, thought that was a lost deal. Right, but they called back and said, okay, we'll take this one. We'll take that one. And so that's why I said, well, wow, I never used it that way before. So my own student, he he became the teacher in that respect. And I adopted it as a regular practice here now for our business.
2: That's, I do the same. Like we don't know everything. Like, everyone comes up with new ideas, new ways to apply the same information. It's awesome. We're talking like about doing subject to Do you find people are more likely to do this or less likely than even a year or two ago when things were really hot?
0: Probably more likely. It's always been kind of the same, but logic would say it's going to be more likely because, I mean, there's fewer buyers out there, right? And the mortgage rates, people are kind of waiting for that, the payments and all that kind of stuff. And they people can't get the price for their house that they could have got a year ago. And they still want that price or something close to it. And so- proposing that, Hey, why don't I, instead of saying, let me take over the mortgage for you. What if I just, uh, what if I got really close to that price? The market allowed me to do that. And I just babysat your loan for a little while. Right. Yeah. Like, What do you mean? babysit? Well, you know, I go ahead and we'll get your price so you can get onto your, your next location. And then I'll go ahead and I'll just kind of take over the payments. I'll take over the maintenance on the property. I'll take care of everything for you. And, you know, and we'll just kind of cash you out until, or cash out when I sell or refinance the property. So that now it sounds doesn't sound threatening at all. So I I like to use the word babysit. Because I it sounds so it sounds so harmless. Mm.
2: So with this, unless you had more stuff to talk about with the uh, sub two, I, I originally was gonna we we're gonna go into all the creative strategies, but we don't need to. We really covered subject two really well. And I think this was an awesome, awesome interview. If people need to learn about doing, you know, seller financing, sandwich leases, option outs, wholesaling all these different strategies. Those are the ones that are popping in my head right now. Let's guide them to your show. Let's guide them to where they can get this information, where you do this all the time and uh, help educate people. He also has a coaching program. I mean,
0: tell us a little bit about where to- yeah, find sure. or. You know, I've got a great YouTube channel that covers it all, all, all the time. And that's eight years of information. I got the podcast, which I think we're going to almost 13 years of episodes. And I'm kind of retired from the education business. Oh. And this massive coaching thing that I used to do, but I'd have set something up. I have a like kind of Thursday's reserve for my, the, the, so I get to work with the people that I want to work with. So I get to be really selective now. But I made it really, really easy. If you wanted to, to look into this, we have something called the Creative Closers Club. Creativeclosersclub.com. And you can go and you just, you get a weekly lesson and a weekly coaching call and you don't have to pay for it until after the lesson and after the coaching call. And so I don't even take the money upfront anymore. So you just kind of pay weekly, but you pay after it. So if you said this one was worth it, I'll take it. If this one wasn't, I want to stop, right? And so just something doing a little bit different. different way. And that way I just, I don't want to deal with the stuff that comes with a big giant coaching business anymore. And we're back a hundred, well, not a hundred percent. So I guess we'd be 80% into um, full-time real estate investors. And then uh, I would carve out Thursdays for coaching. So if they wanted to learn that and work with me once a week, that's how we do it at creativeclosersclub.com.
2: dot Love it. Yeah, you know what? I was going to say it was get the the websites and stuff for the turnkey stuff and that. But you know what? Maybe I'll help reach out to Mercedes and have her on too. Oh yeah, she'd love that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We were actually working on some deals with her in St. Louis, so oh super.
0: Yeah, I mentioned that the the last time that we were on, I said I'm with Glenn. She goes, Oh, I know, Glenn. He was a customer, and I said, like, Oh, really? I had no idea. Yeah. Cool. Back in
2: the day. Yeah. So anyway, Matt. Like always, thanks for coming on the show. Tons of value. Tons of value. I think this one will get shared around a lot. Anytime there's like an actual learning, everyone loves, loves learning, right? It's so awesome.
0: We'll be back with more right after this. Material Investor, tell us where the deals are.
1: Introducing an exhilarating opportunity to own a prime investment property. In the thriving city of Indianapolis.
2: And tell us what the numbers are.
1: Located in a wonderful neighborhood with tremendous growth potential, this three bedroom, one bath, single family residence is set to captivate astute investors like yourself. With an impressive 1,236 square feet, this property presents incredible possibilities for wealth creation and long-term prosperity. You'll be delighted to know that this property is currently undergoing extensive rehab to maximize its potential. Although we don't have the finished photos yet, I assure you that once they become available, this property will not last long on the market. But here's the exciting part. You have the exclusive opportunity to seize it now even before the imminent competition arrives when we list it to the public. Now, let's dive into the aspects that are tailor-made for busy professionals who want to invest in real estate without the hassle. While recent interest rate increases may affect immediate cash flow, it's essential to recognize the wealth-building potential this property holds. Investing in real estate offers a plethora of advantages beyond immediate cash flow, including tax benefits, appreciation, and the power of amortization. Moreover, by using leverage responsibly and astutely, you can multiply your gains and leverage the power of OPM other people's money to build substantial wealth. And it doesn't stop there. This property is not just a wise investment. It's a place that enhances the quality of life for your tenants, ensuring long term occupancy and stable cash flow. The three bedrooms offer spacious comfort for a growing family or young professionals looking to share a home. The one bath design ensures convenience while keeping maintenance costs low. Plus, the generous 1,002 to 36 square feet provide ample space for comfortable living, making it a desirable option for those seeking a place to call home. Lastly, let's talk about the location. And here's where the savvy investor in you will truly appreciate this gem. This property is in an owner-occupant neighborhood. Strategically positioned in an area of Indianapolis set for revitalization, the city has recently approved plans to build a brand new park just blocks away along with a state-of-the-art recreation center. These exciting developments will undoubtedly enhance the desirability and value of the surrounding properties, making this investment an even smarter choice for your portfolio. Don't miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to secure a prime investment property with incredible potential. Act now. Your financial future awaits. For more information on this property and others just like it, grab a free investor package from CashflowSavvy.com. It's your gateway to a hassle-free wealth-building real estate journey.
0: And that wraps up the epic show.